and welcome to Sisters Who Stan, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the stories and shows that made us and explores the questions they've left us asking. I'm Emma. And I'm Bridie. Buckle in as we prepare to celebrate the weird and wonderful world of fandom. Do you want to introduce the title of today's episode, Emma? Yeah. Today we're asking the question, what's your bogart? So for those of you who don't know, a bogart is a magical creature in Harry Potter and no one knows what it looks like because it takes the form of your worst fear. Their official definition is an amortal, shape-shifting non-being. Bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, and they hang out in dark corners, cabinets, attics, a Mm. bit like a big terrifying spider. But uh, instead of a spider, it's your greatest fear. (laughs) Terrifying. So, Bogarts actually existed long before the world of Harry Potter was born. In the Oxford Dictionary of English Folklore, they're described quite broadly as a general term for any supernatural being which frightens people. Their appearance and size also varies greatly. Many are described as relatively human-like in form, though usually uncouth, ugly, and with bestial attributes. T. Sternberg's 1851 book, Dialect and Folklore of Northamptonshire, describes a certain bogart as a squat, hairy man, strong as a six-year-old horse. (laughs) Horse? (laughs) Sorry. Strong as a six-year-old horse and with arms almost as long as tackle poles. Mm, Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, Northamptonshire kept coming up in my research too, as well as Lincolnshire and Shropshire. There was an early reoccurring anecdote from those parts which tells of a farmer who was so pestered by the tricks of a bogart that he and his family decided to move house, much against their will. And as they set out, a neighbour asked if they were really leaving. Yes, we're moving, said the farmer. Yes, indeed, came the bogart's voice from among the piled up furniture. We're all moving. (laughs) So the farmer turned the cart around and went home, saying if they were going to be tormented anyway, they better do it in their own house. (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. It's interesting how there seems to be conflicting information historically about the bogarts are wholly evil or not because i also read that if they feel inclined and they like you they can actually help with like heavy chores at home washing cleaning like doing labor bits that's very useful (laughs) yeah but only if treated well because once upset the spirit will destroy or displace everything in the house and the surroundings I also found that they're frequently compared to hobgoblins. In fact, on Mythology Wikipedia, they said that a bogart is actually a hobgoblin that's been teased or misused to an extent that it becomes a bogart. Oh, well, so Mm. they're very different to the bogarts we meet in Harry Potter. Yeah, very different. But I love the idea of a bogart. I actually love a bit of English folklore in general. I think it's a great idea. And I was thinking this is actually what Pennywise is in It, isn't it? Mm, Oh my God. Yeah. Love that story. I was looking at other places in popular culture they've appeared. And there's also sort of variants of them in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's cool. Yeah. So the idea of a monster taking the form of your worst fear isn't necessarily, I don't want to say it's an unoriginal idea, but it's not like a new <laughs> concept. Yeah, definitely. Though for this episode, we're going to be focusing on the bogarts that you get in Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, and we're first introduced to those in the third book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Lupin is the Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher, and he's teaching the students how to confront a bogart. Yes, and we thought it'd be nice to read just a little part of that chapter out. Now then, said Professor Lupin, beckoning the class towards the end of the room, where there was nothing but an old wardrobe where the teachers kept their spare robes. As Professor Lupin went to stand next to it, the wardrobe gave a sudden wobble, banging off the wall. Nothing to worry about, said Professor Lupin calmly, because a few people had jumped backward in alarm. There's a bogger in there. Most people seemed to feel that this was something to worry about. Neville gave Professor Lupin a look of pure terror, and Seamus Finnegan eyed the narrow, rattling doorknob apprehensively. Bogarts like dark, enclosed spaces, said Professor Lupin. Wardrobes, the gap beneath beds, cupboards under the sink. I even met one that had lodged itself in a grandfather clock. 
This one moved in yesterday afternoon and I asked the headmaster if the staff would leave it to give my third years some practice. So the first question we must ask ourselves is what is a bogart? Hermione put her hand up. It's a shapeshifter, she said. It can take the shape of whatever it thinks will frighten us most. Couldn't have put it better myself, said Professor Lupin, and Hermione glowed. So the bogart sitting in the darkness within has not yet assumed a form. He does not know yet what will frighten the person on the other side of the door. Nobody knows what a bogart looks like when he is alone. But when I let him out, he will immediately become whatever each of us most fears. Oh, I could honestly listen to you read Harry Potter all day. I find it so (laughs) comforting. I loved it when Lupin was Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher. Mm. <laughs> I find the whole concept of bogarts and how you defeat them really interesting. Yeah, definitely. So the way that you defeat a bogart is by using the charm ridiculous. And when you say those magical words, you have to think of a way to make your fear funny. Yeah. And if you really want to see it off, you have to make yourself laugh, a genuine laugh. Which seems like a very difficult thing to try and do if you're suddenly confronted by something terrifying. Yeah. If you're suddenly confronted with your worst fear. <laughs> and also, like, how would you know it's not the thing? Like, you don't want to die because you tried to kill Voldemort by saying ridiculous at him. <laughs> yeah, that's not a mistake you'll make twice. <laughs> exactly. He'd be like, what, what are you, what, what's your plan here? <laughs> and also, because he can read your mind, he'd see you just like frantically trying to imagine him in like a swimsuit. <laughs> Is that how you make Voldemort ridiculous? Yeah, I think a swimsuit's a good idea. <laughs> Some speedos. Yeah, like a tight, like a swimming bikini, like um, like mm. a tankini. <laughs> yeah, a tankini. Mm, yeah, I could see that working. It would make me laugh. Yeah. I actually really rate The Prisoner of Azkaban. For a long time, I used to tell people that was my favourite book. I don't think I'd say it now. I think I've got others that just pitch it to the fork. Um, is that the right phrase? What's it called? <laughs> I have never heard that. <laughs> You know, pitch to the post. What am I trying to say? Pitch to the pipe. Oh, don't worry about it. Basically what I'm saying is there's others that get there first for me. But for a long time, I used to tell people the Prisoner of Azkaban was my favourite. You'll ride or die. Yeah, I think it's one of the ones where things start to become a bit darker. Like you've got the idea of the Grim. Mm, yeah, Lupin becoming a werewolf. And we're mm-hmm. properly introduced to Dementors. And actually, Harry's Bogart is a Dementor. I don't know how you'd make one of them funny either. No. For some reason, any cloaked thing, though, I kind of want to make wear a swimming costume. (laughs) I think everybody looks stupid in a swimming costume. Nobody looks threatening in a swimming costume. Or kind of make its cloak into a little black dress. (laughs) Classic LBD. (laughs) Or you could change it. So you know how they make the kind of like scary, gasping, breathing sounds? Oh, yeah. Maybe you could imagine instead that they were going like, meow. Uh, yeah, I suppose you could do that. You could do that. I mean, so this Dementor would appear and me and my infinite wisdom would make it wear a swimming costume and meow, which actually arguably is still quite a scary image, but it would definitely make me laugh. Yeah. I mean, definitely not something you'd want to mix up and do to an actual Dementor. It's a scary <laughs> word, isn't it, Dementor? Yeah, it is scary. Tom Riddle also faces a bogart. Does he? Yeah. And do you know what Tom Riddle's bogart is? The love of a good woman. <laughs> It's his own dead body, his immortality, which Mm, makes sense. That does make sense. Though how selfish do you have to be? I mean, I think a lot of fear boils down to immortality, actually. So to be fair, that does make perfect sense. Ron's Bogart is a spider. Of course. And Hermione's is Professor McGonagall telling her she failed her exams. (laughs) It's definitely a symbol of like a broader thing, isn't it? That's being afraid of failure. It's kind of a really big thing personified in a moment or in an image. Yeah, it really made me think, actually. It's weird that Hermione isn't in Ravenclaw. It is weird, isn't it? She is brave, though. Mm, Yeah, she is brave. And I think what she does is she kind of gets herself into situations that actually a clever person wouldn't get themselves into because she's kind of more loyal and brave. Yeah, that's true. 
I was trying to think about sort of hybrid houses for each of them. So Harry would obviously be Gryffindor Slytherin, Hermione Gryffindor Ravenclaw, and I think Ron would be Gryffindor Hufflepuff. Mm. I've always felt very drawn to Hufflepuff. Me too. Really? I thought you were a big Gryffindor fan. Well, I was for a long time. I think probably when I first read them. But actually, I don't really know how brave I am. (laughs) (laughs) When the chips are down. I mean, I am brave, but also I think I'm more Hufflepuff. And I do actually think Hufflepuffs are the most underrated house. I always associate them with being massive empaths. Mm, Yeah, they really are. Do you know what sold me on Hufflepuff? A, Mm. Cedric Diggory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, point one. And B, so you know there's that poem that's about all the different houses. It really moved me and it made me just like a big Hufflepuff fan. Yeah. So it goes, said Slytherin will teach just those whose ancestry is purest. Said Ravenclaw will teach those whose intelligence is surest. Said Gryffindor will teach those with brave deeds to their name. Said Hufflepuff, I'll teach the lot and treat them just the same. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. But surely the heroes should have been in Hufflepuff then. They should have been. It's like, I don't care what you're capable of. Everybody should be treated equally. And then mm. the others being like, I'm only going to teach you if you're cunning. Like what? <laughs> Teachers can't say that. But you are right. Hermione is a bit rogue. I don't know how we play Shag Mary Cruz on this episode. Can we? Mm. Yeah. Shag Mary Cruz, Patronus, Bogart. Mirror of Erezet. <laughs> I mean, that would be very weird. I guess, like, we could do what about Defence Against the Dark Arts teachers? So mm. there's Lupin. He teaches us about Patronuses and Bogarts. Uh, Gildry Lockhart. Uh, okay, yeah, good plan. Well, Snape has to be up there. Okay, Snape, Gildry and Lupin. Mm. Well, I do love Lupin. I'd probably marry Lupin. I feel like I couldn't do a cruise with Gildery because he'd be talking about himself the whole time. <laughs> Although he's supposed to be beautiful to look at, so maybe that might sweeten the deal. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd probably have to shag Gildery. Mm-hmm. Just get it out of the way. Yeah. Marry Lupin and cruise with Snape. What a cruise. I know. What a cruise. I mean, I love Alan Rickman. I would marry Alan Rickman. Oh, yeah. How about you? Would those be your answers? Yeah, I'd probably have to say the same. I was trying to think about other Defence Against the Dark Arts teachers. So there's Umbridge, Quirrell, and Mad-Eye? Ugh, oh God, yeah. Who's in the seventh? I think it's Snape. He finally gets the post, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, so Umbridge, Quirrell, and Mad-Eye. So with Mad-Eye, is it Barty Crouch Jr. as Mad-Eye? No, he's in the form of real Mad-Eye. Okay. Mildly disappointed because I wouldn't mind a bit of David Tennant. Uh, (laughs) That's fine, (laughs) though. Uh, Mad-Eye is actually the only good person in that lineup, so I'd marry him. Yeah. And now I'm torn because I think Umbridge is like a dreadful human. She's horrible and really Mm -hmm. scary. But do I think she would be fun on a cruise? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'd have a really like girly time and she'd make our cabin all pink and hang up those ugly cat plates. And I'd get Mm -hmm. to see all her pink outfits. I think if I pretended that I agreed with her kind of pure blood (laughs) vibe, maybe we'd get on for a little bit. (laughs) That might be impossible though. Put politics totally aside, you could potentially have a nice time with Umbridge. Mm. Yeah. I'm probably just drawn to it as well because I would love to go on a cruise with Imelda Staunton. (laughs) Uh, And then Chad Quirrell, which, you know, Quirrell on the streets, maybe Voldemort in the sheets. (laughs) One can only hope. Yeah. (laughs) So researching this episode led me to thinking about fear a lot. And I wanted to ask you, what was the first thing you can remember being afraid of? And I mean, monster wise, we can maybe get into the philosophical stuff a bit further down. Yeah, because I definitely had a very keen awareness of my mortality from quite a young age. Yeah, 
I think we were both pretty unusually aware of our mortality and probably still are, but let's, yeah, let's start with childhood monstery fears. Mm. Okay. So I was afraid of, I was quite afraid of monsters, specifically Bigfoot from that TV series. Yeah. So Bridie went through a phase of having this thing in her mind that Bigfoot, like, you know, the famous Yeti was in the bathroom (laughs) and in the loft. And it all stemmed from that weird TV show. What was it called? Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. I mean, I will never watch that again. (laughs) He's actually quite, he's quite scary in that show. It is scary. It's like a big, hairy strange thing and I also didn't like and I really hate saying this because I think people will think I'm an arsehole but I didn't like E.T. <laughs> oh god yeah you didn't like E.T. did you? Whenever he was like E.T. go home I was like I really wish you would. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. And We both watched Jurassic Park at quite a formative moment because that had a really big impact on us. Oh my god that film really did a number on us. I genuinely if a ball got t- like turned into a velociraptor. <laughs> Game over. Game over. It would be too scary. <laughs> I think for a good portion of our childhood, velociraptors were probably up our gut. Mm. Both of us had reoccurring dreams about dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. Although I, I think I, I leant towards being more scared of T-Rexes. I would maintain that velociraptors are scarier. I think they are too. But for yeah. my dreams mainly involve T-Rexes, I had this dream that I've told you about before (laughs) (laughs) oh yes we had gone to um, America and I had found the uh, skyscrapers quite scary and not long after we were there I had a dream that I was on top of a skyscraper (laughs) with a (laughs) t-rex with a t-rex and we were sat at a long dining table and the t-rex said to me well, actually, I don't even know if he said it to me. It was more implied. An unspoken situation. We had an unspoken agreement that for him to not eat me, to keep me alive, I had to eat the Queen of England. Um, so the end part of the dream that I remember is the T-Rex being at the end of the dining table and a waiter coming out with a silver tray, which he put in front of me like a cartoon, pulled the lid off the tray and there was a chicken uh, (laughs) with a crown on it. And I was like, well, thank God, it just looks like chicken. I can eat the same problem. (laughs) Forgive me, Elizabeth. (laughs) Forgive me. (laughs) So that, no, T-Rexes and uh, dinosaurs had it. I mean, that whole scene when they're in the kitchen... Yeah. And they looked so good. Oh my God, so good. And the reason they looked so good is because they're basically these incredible puppets. Like there Mm. is some CGI in the film, but loads of it is animatronics and puppets. And the CGI dinosaurs that are in it, they do look a little bit naff now. But for the most part, I think it looks pretty amazing. That film is a masterpiece. It is the best. If a Velociraptor came out of that cupboard though, how would you make Mm. a Velociraptor or like a T-Rex ridiculous? I think with a T-Rex, because of the tiny hands and arms, they've got a little bit, you know, you've got something to work with there. They've got mm. an element of the ridiculous about them anyway. So like maybe I would imagine he's trying to reach for something, you know, do up his <laughs> shoelaces and he can't quite. Yeah. My friend got me a great card actually with a T-Rex making a bed on it. And he's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So a T-Rex, you've got some material to uh, to go with. Velociraptor, I, I don't think there's anything. It would be really embarrassing as well if I had to face it in front of the class and everyone would literally see me piss myself and Lupin would have to step in. And then everyone would be like, oh, dinosaurs haven't been around for thousands of years. And it's like, yeah, well, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can't see there being many velociraptors in the class, to be fair. Mm. What do you think the most common childhood fear is? 
So I had a look into this and it changes a lot with age, but the dark and being alone came up the most in, yeah, the articles I was reading. As well as the toilet flushing, which did make me laugh (laughs) because I do remember legging it as soon as you pull the chain to get away from the (laughs) toilet. But other than that, any other, I don't know, childhood fears stick out to you? So I have, quite unusually, a fairly detailed documentation of my worries from when I was young. I mean, as you know, I was a very anxious kid Mm -hmm. and mum gave me a book to write all my worries in. It was my worry (laughs) book. And it was a really good idea because what she was trying to demonstrate to me was how worries pass. So Mm -hmm. I had to write down the thing that I was scared of and out of 10, how scared I was of it. And then an hour right. later, how scared I was then, mm. which kind of also demonstrated how fleeting a lot of these fears were. That's so, a great idea. Yeah, it's really good. So one, one fear was the headless horseman, because I'd mm. recently watched Sleepy Hollow. It was like, you know, 10 out of 10, nine out of 10. <laughs> and then yeah. an hour later, it was like, nah, three out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> and then another fear was having a heart attack. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Yeah, I know. eight-year-old worries about having a heart attack. I know. But then an hour later, I was not bothered about it. Which actually, to be fair, is kind of how I fluctuate about worrying about that kind of thing now. Yeah, same. I love that though. That's a great idea to kind of document how strong throughout the day that fear is. I think that's a really Mm. clever clever technique. Yeah. So You know you'll get through it when you look back at it. You're like, oh, I was worried, but I know I won't be forever. Yeah, exactly. And you can sort of look at that book now and be like, 10 years ago today, I was 10 out of 10 worried about the <laughs> headless horseman from Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> no, now it's just my own mortality and mm. <laughs> paying the rent. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously in the book, Harry, Ron and Hermione meet a Bogart for the first time at 13, 14. What would your Bogart have been then? Hmm. I think then it might have taken more of like a like a rejection form. Mm. You know, when you're a teenager, you know, so like a boy I fancied appearing and being like, ugh, you're disgusting and you're stupid. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of that for everyone at that age, isn't it? Because you're so like vulnerable. You know, are you popular? Mm. Do the boys fancy you? Mm. You're yeah. really reliant on people accepting you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And also at the time, it's really like if something happens and people laugh at you, you're like, my reputation. People will never take me seriously again. <laughs> um, yeah. I suppose when you're a teenager, your your rep is very, uh, very important. God, I tell you, you couldn't pay me all the money in the world to go back to a secondary school now. No. I, honestly, people who go back to teach in secondary schools, I'm like, either heroes. <laughs> yeah. People when they're at their worst age ever. Although actually adults can be pretty dreadful. That's true. Adults can be dreadful, but not as bad as teenagers. What about you? So I think I'm still recovering from watching The Ring in 2002. (laughs) (laughs) Even now, if I have a bit of an irrational moment of fear, like if I'm in the shower or turning the last light off at night, my mind will go (laughs) to the girl from The Ring. Yeah. I think also because a part of me believes your mind can manifest things which aren't there. Mm. So you know what? She's actually always been the reason that I've been too scared to do psychedelics because (laughs) I have always maintained to my friends that I will just hallucinate the girl from the ring. (laughs) (laughs) Because you've said that, you're now just making it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, it's a real shame from what I hear. (laughs) Well, that would be very upsetting (laughs) and scary if it happened. Yeah, definitely. I think one of my fears about ghosts is that there's a little part of me that's like, well, 
they could be real. <laughs> a lot of people have seen spooky things. And like a lot of people who I have a lot of respect for have seen some mm. things they can't explain. So there's always a part of me that's like, well, who's used to say they're not real? I love ghost stories. Me too. They're the best. It's just the best when, you know, even when you've heard them before, but when people start kind of settling in and tell you a ghost story. Oh, nothing like it. My favourite ghost story is actually maybe The Woman in Black. Oh my God, yes. That was a fantastic play, wasn't it? She was really scary because she represented that a kid was going to die. Mm. And that's why I found her so freaky. Well, the first big scream in the house when she goes to touch that doorknob and you're not expecting it. Oh, yeah, there's quite a few jump scares in it. I'd love to go and see it again. I took one of my best friends with me who wasn't that into scary films or anything. (laughs) So it was a bit of a... uh... Baptism of fire. Yeah. Also, as a teenager, I was very afraid of something bad happening to my cat. Oh, tea towel. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> I was very protective. I actually made a friend cry once because I accidentally stepped on his tail <laughs> and I kicked off. Though I have to say that was not when I was a teenager. That was when I was like eight or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fair enough. I can definitely imagine that. That cat was like my child. <laughs> Why does God always take the good ones? <laughs> we had him for a long while, though. Yeah, he was around for a long time. When I was 7 to 19, I think. That's a pretty good stretch. Yeah, a good run. In terms of talking about more like mature fears, shall we talk about Molly Weasley's Bogart? Because that probably represents what both our Bogarts would be now. Yes, let's talk about Molly's Bogart. So just to refresh the listener's memory, we've got the segment here where Harry is confronted with Molly and her Bogart in the Order of the Phoenix. God, I actually haven't read any Harry Potter out loud, probably since I read it to you <laughs> when we were like... I'm about to settle in. Teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> you're about to get some deja vu, Barney. Mm. <laughs> Enjoy. Harry tiptoed up the stairs in the hall, past the stuffed... Stuffed elf heads? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem very nice. Uh, where are they in this scene? <laughs> Sorry, I have, I have just been floored by the first sentence. <laughs> they're at the burrow, aren't they? Oh, no, the they're, they're probably... You, I think they're at... Um, uh, are they at Grimmauld Place? Oh, do you know what? I think they are. Freaky. They wouldn't have stuffed elf heads at the burrow, would they? No, that's not really the aesthetic there. <laughs> that is not. <laughs> Sorry, I was a bit taken back by that. <laughs> <laughs> Start that again. <clears throat> Harry tiptoed up the stairs in the hall, past the stuffed elf heads, glad to be on his own again. But as he approached the first landing, he heard noises. Someone was sobbing in the drawing room. Hello, Harry said. There was no answer, but the sobbing continued. He climbed the remaining stairs two at a time, walked across the landing and opened the drawing room door. Someone was cowering against the dark wall, her wand in her hand, her whole body shaking with sobs, sprawled on the dusty old carpet in a patch of moonlight, clearly dead, was Ron. All of the air seemed to vanish from Harry's lungs. He felt as though he was falling through the floor. His brain turned icy cold. Ron? Dead? No, it couldn't be. But wait a moment, it couldn't be. Ron was downstairs. Ridiculous, Mrs Weasley sobbed, pointing her shaking hand at Ron's body. Crack, Ron's body turned into bills, spread-eagled on his back, his eyes wide open and empty. Mrs Weasley sobbed even harder. Ridiculous, she sobbed again. Crack, Mr Weasley's body replaced bills, his glasses askew, a trickle of blood running down his face. Crack, dead twins. Crack, dead Percy. Crack, dead Harry. Mrs Weasley, just get out of here, shouted Harry, staring down at his own dead body on the floor. What's going on? Lupin had come running into the room, closely followed by Sirius. Lupin looked from Mrs Weasley to the dead Harry on the floor and seemed to understand in an instant. Pulling his own wand, he said very firmly and clearly, Ridiculous. Harry's body vanished. A silvery orb hung in the air over the spot where it had lain. Lupin waved his wand once more and the orb vanished in a puff of smoke. That moment is a bit of a shocker. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things I loved about Harry Potter. There's moments of real darkness. Mm. It's definitely what my bog art would be. Yeah, I mean, I should hope so. I was thinking if I was in some bog art class and your bog art appeared and it was like a snake, I'd be like, uh, Emma. <laughs> it's also an important moment in the book because Harry sees that he's one of the dead bodies. Yeah, because it's a moment he realises that she sees him like a son. Yeah, it's really sweet. I saw a Reddit thread where someone was like, how do you make Molly Weasley's bog art funny? Because she's having a real mare trying to deal with it. And I was like, that is a very good question. Mm. There were some interesting ideas being thrown around. So somebody said you could imagine the blood was actually ketchup or maybe the bodies start flailing and bouncing around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think people were struggling overall. What I love, though, is how random those things are. Like In the way that your bog art is really personal, what you find funny is also really personal. Mm. Like, you know, me being, yeah, I'd imagine Voldemort in a swimsuit. I'd be cracking up. The point is that you have to make yourself laugh. It's not about making other people laugh. Yeah, I think you'd really have to muster all your funnies to deal with that particular bog art. Mm. I mean, you could maybe give your loved one like a funny death, you know, like a (laughs) piano fell on them or something. (laughs) I'm glad to know you'd find it amusing if I was crushed from a tumbling piano. Well, it would be a struggle. (laughs) I was thinking about fear in stories and I watched a TED talk about what fear can teach you. And I thought it was really interesting. So the woman who was doing the TED talk is called Karen Thompson Walker. And she was talking about how fear and stories have the same architecture. Oh, that's interesting. So they both have characters and plots and suspense. And it's kind Mm. of like we're the authors and readers of our own fear. And what we should try and manage is our response to the fears in our head, particularly the ones that we've made really like lurid and visceral, because they often aren't the ones that you should actually be afraid of. It's, you know, it's the more subtle fears which we should listen to because they're often tapping into something about ourselves, which is really important to listen to. Mm, That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about my fears having um, different subtleties. Mm. I can see that my fears have different levels of like probability, but I don't think I'd connected that in a way that like some might feel more sort of sensationalist. Mm. Yeah, well, so the example that she gives is a group of sailors whose ship got hit by a sperm whale, which is the story that inspired Moby Dick. And Mm. they were in these lifeboats and they were deciding which route they were going to try and go to the nearest island. Anyway, the nearest island was an island that was rumoured to have cannibals on it. So they didn't even try and go there. They ended up trying to sail all the way back in a different direction, which was much longer. And they ran out of supplies and half of them starved. But what she was saying was because of how imaginative and visceral the idea of cannibals was to them, they didn't use their judgment and were more reactive and kind of afraid in that moment. And so made their choice based on that rather than what was more likely. It was kind of interesting what she was saying about which fears you listen to and what it can teach you that is really interesting I think listening to you say that it's kind of making me think of how fear is used in elections and in politics in general so Mm. for example when you think about the way immigration is portrayed uh, by certain Mm. news outlets and politicians they really weaponize fear as a you know a tool to support sensationalist stories exactly they create a very specific narrative and scapegoat a group of people as like a distraction that talk sounds great though i'll definitely give that a listen yeah i'll pop it in the show notes one of the main takeaways i found from it was understanding your fear so you can use it to your advantage Mm, I love that. No, dad always says about surfing the nerves. Yeah, surf the stress. And I also believe the quote about how, you know, the cave you fear to enter has the treasure that you seek type of thing. Mm. So your fears can often be indicators of something you might need to like process, I guess, or confront. Yeah, they're a part of you. Mm. I think one of the sort of shining bits of advice that I always come back to when I think about fear and I appreciate this might come across as a bit basic, but uh, it's in the book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. (laughs) 
And it's in one of the first chapters. And she says that all of our fears boil down to the thought, I won't be able to handle it. So even with Molly Weasley and her book art, what that could ultimately boil down to is, you know, I won't be able to deal with it if someone I love dies. Mm. So sometimes now when I start feeling afraid of something, I sometimes say to myself, I can handle it. And I know that sounds super simple, but I've found it really helpful and a soothing exercise. Mm. I suppose ultimately it sort of just means having faith in yourself and knowing you're enough. Yeah. I think fear is a thing that you live with all the time. And it's just about learning how to live with it in in different ways, recognizing the way your mind works and how you respond and just knowing, you know, some of your fears are really enlightening and might be really useful to listen to. And some of them are just invasive, like you're stressed. So you're thinking about things and you're spiraling. Mm. Yeah, well, because there are helpful fears and unhelpful ones, aren't there? Yeah. So I could be worried about a tsunami happening where I live, but there's nothing I can do to control that. So that's an unhelpful fear. Yeah. Or you could be worried about your teeth. So it's helpful because, you know, then you floss. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a helpful fear. (laughs) It leads to something, you know, productive and healthy. As a kind of yin to the yang of the bog art, we also want to talk about what our Patronus would be. As Professor Lupin told Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban, the Patronus is a kind of anti-Dementor, a guardian which acts as a shield between you and the Dementor. It's a kind of positive force, a projection of the very things the Dementor feeds upon, hope, happiness, the desire to survive. But it cannot feel despair, as real humans can, so the Dementors can't hurt it. So the way that you manifest a Patronus is by thinking of your most happy memory, and your Patronus will take either a non-corporal or corporal form. A non-corporal Patronus can appear as a thin wisp of silver, uh, whereas a corporal Patronus has a form that's clearly defined. Mm. So what would you think of Bridie to uh, conjure your Patronus? I mean, well, obviously, recording Sisters Who Stan. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, life highlight. (laughs) Yeah, it'll save me from any Dementor. Uh, But if that didn't do the trick, I think I'd just think about moments with my friends and family when we've been, like, really cackling away about something or, like... Mm. Maybe family holidays to Devon, Christmas. Yeah, I was actually going to say Devon as well. I was thinking about having a curry on Barracane Beach with the sun going down with good company, good wine, good food. Mm, Doesn't get better. It doesn't get better than that, my friend. (laughs) I think there's just something about eating al fresco with friends and family that just, yeah, really makes my heart fulfilled. Mm. (laughs) I think that's probably where I'd go to you to think up a Patronus. Or like, you know, a New Year's Eve around the piano, singing Disney songs. (laughs) What form do you think your Patronus would take? I've thought about this before, but mainly when I've been thinking about what my demon would be, um, which Mm. is a different thing. Maybe when I was younger, I loved dolphins. Yeah, you did. You had a sea-themed bedroom. Uh, Under the sea. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Difference. But I think now maybe it's... um, I love cats, but I really just don't trust them to protect me. Maybe a whale. A whale. It's funny how no one in the Harry Potter books has a whale, probably because it's quite hard to sort of make visually attack the Dementors, Mm. although it probably could eat one whole. Yeah, exactly. You know how humpback whales come up and open their mouths? It would just do that to the Dementor. Down in one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What would yours be? I probably would have to say cats. I've always had a bit of an affinity with them. I just can't imagine a cat defending me. I know, but I, I think maybe more of a big cat. So like my ultimate favorite animal is a domestic cat, but my Mm. Patronus to protect me would probably be more like a panther or something. Yeah, like a tiger or a lion would be cool. Mm. I guess 
what I love about Patronuses and what's interesting about Bogarts is that they both give us these really deep, meaningful insights into the characters of Harry Potter. Mm, exactly. And I think it's interesting how a lot of magic seems to be about knowing yourself. And the creatures mm. that are really scary are the creatures that know something private about you. So with like Pennywise and It or a Bogart or, you know, Dementors who can make you relive your worst memories. An important part of defending yourself from them often boils down to knowing yourself. So knowing what makes you laugh or knowing what makes you happy. Yeah, that is really cool. God, magic's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, we should probably wrap up for today. But thanks so much to everyone who's listened to today's episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on what your Patronus or Bogart might be. So feel free to get in touch with us on socials. We're at Sisters Who Stan on both Instagram and Twitter. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please pop us a review over on Apple Podcasts. It will really help give us the push we need to keep this podcast going. Bye Bye for for now. now.